And now it's time for the Wild Side News with your host, Sydney Wildsmith. Happy New Year's, all you nature-loving, earth-trekking, clean-tech activists around the world. We are taking over the world, and not a day too soon. But you know what I think? I think we truly are beginning to turn this thing around, which can be looked at two ways. One, we've made some real progress. Two, we've got a long road ahead of us. And so, we have a special inspirational show to kick off the new year and bring an official end to the holiday season. Today, we talk with Dr. David Suzuki, who brings us his panoramic perspective of the path ahead. That's coming up when your Voice of the Earth continues here in the new year on the Wild Side News. Stay tuned. Back to the Wild Side News. And now, Sydney Wildsmith. Hey, it's a brand new year. And I speak for myself when I say I'm going to be working harder than ever to turn this thing around on this little planet of ours, this precious little Earth. It's really worth the effort. I care about this thing. Truth is, in this last year, we've made some amazing progress. Certainly, people around the planet are feeling just how interdependent we are. We're beginning to realize that there are limits as oil prices reach an all-time high and are likely to smash through all reasonable price barriers this year, I hate to say, which of course will mean we will all begin to see what it's like living like the rest of the living elements of our planet, feeling a bit pinched, stretched to the limits, a bit pushed around. Thank God we have a brain, I think. We do have the capacity to change things, and change we must. Trouble is, we're laced together with economic strings that force us all to move together, and change happens slowly. Which makes me have to say that of all the things I could wish for in 2008, it would be to at least begin to talk about changing the global economic order, which we've inherited from ancient times, and explore some new systems just as much of the world is accommodating to new energy sources of wind and solar as never before, and new technologies hold out a hope for a much more efficient redistribution of energy, likewise it's time now to apply the same thinking to these old, worn-out economic systems. As the world clamors for clean tech, we need clean ec to go along with it. We need a leaner, faster, more efficient and sustainable system of economics that unburdens us from this top-down control. We are burdened with the heaviness of the system, and we require swift action, a freeing to allow us to create adaptive strategies and responses, but we're held back by massive economic regulatory machinery and a consolidation of wealth that is beginning to really be felt throughout our communities and our world. Well, those are my thoughts, and I'm coming to realize it's time for the world to address this unworkable system. Someone has to say it, 
and that will be a theme for me for this year. But before we get into all of that, it is, after all, a holiday today. It is the first day of the new year. So we'll make the most of it and enjoy the rest of this holiday. And so that's why today I felt it a good time to take a listen once again to a wise sage whose life has been dedicated to exploring the wonder, teaching, and inspiring love of the earth. Today, a very special, in-depth interview with one of my favorite people, Dr. David Suzuki. It's a show in three parts. It's a story of discovery that has so much relevance to our world right now. And so, Dr. David Suzuki. I have an extraordinary personal joy in talking with the guest who is about to join us on the Wild Side News here for for reasons that will become apparent, I hope, in this discussion. Joining us now from Portland where he's traveling and helping to talk about uh, many things, but including his new book, David Suzuki, the autobiography, is Dr. David Suzuki. Uh, David, welcome to the Wild Side News. The pleasure is all mine. Thanks for having me. You have had an enormous influence on the planet in a lot of different ways, and I, I really think it just grew as part of your spirit, just who you were and how you grew up. And what I'd like to do in today's conversation, which is going to be extensive, is to, first of all, find the roots of that. One has to wonder why, why you had this particular fascination with the earth and how that affected you. And we're ultimately going to end up with, so therefore, what about the future? And, and again, the opportunity for people to appreciate things as we were very fortunate to appreciate things. Yeah, so I'd like you know, I often get parents saying, now, what was it that was important in your life? Uh, how come you became this crusader for the environment? I want my kids to grow up just like you. And I'm saying, no, you don't. I'm just uh, the result of a crazy set of circumstances that I hope never, never happen again. Uh, certainly for me, being born a third-generation Canadian in uh, British Columbia and then having Pearl Harbor happen, Pearl Harbor really was the definitive event in my life that shaped me, both in terms of the drives that I have and in all of the hang-ups that I have as well are stem from that. Uh, you know, being uh, growing up in Vancouver while growing up to till I was six, uh, as a carefree boy who uh, never thought really much about about being different from my neighbors, and then suddenly uh, being told, you're an enemy, you can't be trusted, and you sure as hell don't have any rights of citizenship even though you and your mom and dad are all born here, uh, you were going to throw you in, the, in a camp and keep you chained away for imprisoned for the war and then kick you out of the province. That had a very, very big impact on shaping the person that I became. And it obviously influenced everything you did, as you say, from that point forward. Let's start out with, with the boy prior to becoming the enemy. Because I think that's where the real story begins. Yeah. I see this image, and I, I, I see I kind of see this image of North America, and then it's like with the Google Earth now, I can kind of zoom in, yeah. <laughs> and I go to some little tiny spot, some little little spot in in British Columbia, and that's where you started out. That's right. And and what a what a wonderful place to grow up as a boy, as I'm sure. It was all throughout small-town North America. It's exactly Van right. Vancouver in 1936 was a small city. Um, there, I don't know what the population was, but it's nothing like the Vancouver of two million people today. 
And, you know, in 1936, when I was born, there were still dozens and dozens of streams and creeks uh, that ran out of the city that had salmon runs in them. In 1900, there were 52 distinct salmon rivers and creeks in Vancouver. By the year 2000, there was only one. So uh, the boy, when I was uh, growing up, I mean, I could go down right in our neighborhood in the outskirts of Vancouver and catch trout. I could catch uh, salmon. I'd go with my father and catch uh, sturgeon in the Fraser River and halibut uh, off what is now Spanish Banks, a big uh, swimming area, or catch sea-run cutthroat trout right around Stanley Park, our great uh, park in the middle of the city. That's the world that I grew up in as a boy, and it was a magical, magical place. And those early experiences really shaped me in terms of the the things that bring me joy and the things that I find worth fighting for. And I think that's the way it was all across North America. In rural rural North America, there were still hundreds and hundreds of small towns that were flourishing, that were little vital communities of maybe 200, 500 people that became uh, the hub of of big farming uh, country. I find all throughout the prairies in Canada, there are, are the derelict remnants of what used to be a whole series of towns spread all across the prairies of Canada. That's the way the world was back then. And it was very connected and integrated with the, with the world, the earth. Of course. And nature. That of was, course. That you, was the wonder. You can't grow up in a rural setting or a small town setting without being aware of of insects about about the importance of weather and uh, encountering ditches and creeks and ponds and I mean I think that uh, we still had a kids I'm thinking of kids still had a very deep connection with the the, the the natural world we didn't have television back then we didn't have computers or anything to distract us we had to get out and play you know I can remember when I was uh, when I was a boy. Uh, Usually around 5.36, that back doors would start opening and moms would start yelling, Mary, David, come on in, it's dinner time. And, and we'd come out of the, you know, the little uh, woodlot in the back or a ditch or uh, playing out in the open fields. Because, of course, back then there was no television. There were no uh, computers to, to tie us up. And uh, we were out playing. That's what we had to do. And we'd be out there, whether it was raining or sunny, it didn't matter. We were out there and... Uh, uh, I think that that's a huge difference that's happened now. We tend to uh, separate ourselves and closet ourselves away in a man-made, uh, man-made world. I always felt eternally grateful to my father because uh, his mom and dad had emigrated to Canada uh, early in the 1900s. And coming from Japan as, as immigrants, their whole focus was on making money and security. And my dad was the eldest in the family, and they taught him over and over, you've got to work hard and make money, 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 money. And I used to call my dad a mutant. I said, Dad, how come you were such a mutant? Because you didn't listen to what your parents were saying. I mean, my dad always believed you had to work hard to make money for the necessities in life. But he said, you don't run after money as an end in itself. And certainly when I was growing up, he taught me, You've got to feel sorry for those people that are bragging about their fancy clothes or their big car. He said, they've got off on the wrong, uh, the wrong track. And his great joy was, was nature. He was a, a naturalist, and he loved camping and hiking and fishing. And those are my first memories from childhood, are going fishing with my dad. 
And uh, I, I've always been grateful to him that he he really instilled that sense of the, the love of the outdoors. And my mother was this quiet person. You know, she was the backbone of the family, but she let my dad be the, the star in the family because he was an outgoing guy and everybody loved my father. Uh, but my mother... You know, she was the first up in the morning and the last to go to bed at night. Worked hard to keep the family going. And when I was uh, a kid, I discovered a swamp. And I this was an absolutely magical place. Whenever I had a chance, I'd jump on my bike and ride out to that swamp. And I'd come home covered in mud and soaking wet with jars filled with little wonders. My mother never once said, David, don't come in here. You'll dirty the floor. She would welcome me in, and as she stripped my clothes off, she would marvel over all the little treasures that I had in my jars. You know, I, I remember when I brought some salamander eggs home, and boy, you would have thought I'd won a Nobel Prize. You know, oh, I've never seen salamander eggs. Isn't that wonderful? We'll be able to watch them grow and hatch. And my mother gave me, you know, just encouraged me so much uh, to carry on with that love of nature. And I often see young parents in their spiffy homes and a you know, kid comes home with a jar of caterpillars or something and right away the response is, take that out of here, don't bring that in here. And we teach our children to be either frightened of nature or think that it's dirty or disgusting. And we begin that terrible separation between us and the natural world. You know, it's interesting because I feel such a kinship with you and quite honestly, my family was very much the same. My father, who always felt it was important to bring home enough to survive, but did not say we had to be wealthy people. And my mother, who absolutely loved nature. I just think that's interesting. And I think ultimately... Are we brothers? <laughs> it's, well, What's yes. going on here? I, we are both very lucky guys. I, I totally agree with you. Yeah. Because I, as much, and my father was sometimes pilloried for not being the guy who was going after all the big bucks. Exactly, exactly. I remember, you know, we used to make a pilgrimage every weekend uh, to go and see uh, his mom and dad. And I hated them because they were always bawling my dad out. What did you take that weekend and go fishing with David for? You should have been home working and making yeah. money. You know, like yeah. they were dumping on my father, my great hero, and my mm. mentor. He was a wonderful guy. Well, very similar. And then my mother, who was who uh, just had such an appreciation. So I too had was bringing home creatures all the time. Yeah. I had my little zoo and stuff. Exactly. But I want to move into that now because. I was different, you were different, in the sense that we somehow were drawn to those creatures. What can you tell me? Why, why, what was that fascination well, for you? Well, E.O. Wilson, the great ecologist at Harvard University, says that is biophilia. Bio meaning life and philia meaning love. He believes that we all are born with biophilia, a love to be with other creatures. He thinks it's genetic. And that what we, and you know, if you take a, a young baby and show that baby a flower or a butterfly, or for that matter, a spider or a snake for the first time, you don't see the child recoil in fear. It always will reach out and want to touch it and That's stuff right. it in its mouth, of course. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, they want, they're attracted instantly by the movement and the color. That's what is built into us. I really agree with Wilson. I think. We have a, just a natural love of or attraction to the natural world and other creatures. But what we do in a city is we teach them, don't touch that. You know, right away we're, we're freaked out. It might sting you or 
you know, it, it, you might be allergic to it or it's going to dirty the floor. I mean, I'm amazed at the number of people I see freaked out when they see an ant on the floor. You'd think it was, you know, the filthiest creature in the world. I mean, we just teach our children biophobia. We teach them to fear or hate nature. And if you hate nature, then you won't hesitate to go out and clear-cut it or dig it up or damn it or do whatever you want in the name of economics, and you won't have any sense of, oh, my God, you know, what are we doing to that world that I love? You know, it's interesting because I've been involved in environmental education in various ways, and what you just said gave me an insight, and that is the fact that environmental education right now, it's more dependent upon the parents uh, for them to have an attitude, just like you stated, yeah. to to be accepting of of living life and as well to appreciating the diversity. Because if if that doesn't happen, those kids will be preclude. They just will not have that opportunity. Absolutely. I, I, so I think that's that's where, where we need to start educating people. Absolutely, and I think you you. You've uh, pinpointed one of the real problems is that we've now had generations of people that have grown up in cities, in big cities. You know, when I was born, uh, still most people lived in villages, rural village communities. But today, uh, way over half of all of humanity in the world lives in big cities. We're a big urban dweller. And certainly in North America, over 85% of us now live in big cities. And it's easy to kind of lose that sense of love or, or feeling for nature. And we just continue to uh, teach, you know, foist on our kids that, that flies and cockroaches and all these things we're fighting, you know, that, that, that we're teaching our kids that nature is, uh, is an enemy to be fought. So the challenge now to reestablish that connection with nature is very, very hard. But, you know, what I've seen is programs to take children... Uh, you know, you only have to take a child out to a farm, for heaven's sake. Yes. Uh, I'm amazed at the number of children that have never seen a live cow or a chicken and uh, who, who don't understand that, that wieners and hamburgers are the muscles of an animal. You know, we need to, to, to take them out as young children, and it's very easy to connect them then. I was very fortunate to be to grow up in the Midwest uh, in the farm community, and one week a year, I'd go out and spend a week on a farm, a rural farm in, in rural Wisconsin, and that's where uh, uh, everything began to change with the Absolutely. ancient old you know, grandparents. That should be mandatory, wow. I think, for, for all kids in the cities, is to have that time at some point in their primary school uh, experience, to go out for a week and spend it out in the country somewhere, either on a farm or, you know, out in the wilderness somewhere in a camp. Uh, they've got to experience that. This is actually fun because I, I had all sorts of concepts where this conversation would go, but I'm going to let it go where it goes because I have so much fun sharing sh ideas. I've often thought about a, a program that should be initiated called the Rural Urban Exchange Program where families just swap kids. Yep. Just swap kids because also the rural kids, they kind of hate growing up in the, in the, in the country too much, yep. you know, and they need to get into the city. Maybe. No, that's an excellent idea. I think uh, we need as many, well, I mean, the farm experience, of course, is absolutely crucial. I've found in cities, and I've done shows for children, uh, in cities, kids have no idea when you say, when you turn the water, the tap on, where does the water come from? Or when you turn the lights on with the electricity, or when you put the garbage on the curb, or, or flush the toilet, where does it go? They have no idea. And food, my goodness, when you ask them, where does your food come come from, they'll say right away, well, the, the supermarket. 
but many of them are shocked to learn that vegetables grow in the soil. You know, you mean this grows in the dirt? You know, and they, they're so used to everything being free of blemishes, they don't understand, you know, that, uh, well, I remember when I was a boy, my mother would, in the fall, would sit with a, a big basket of apples or pears, and with a little uh, knife, she would nick out all of the scabs on the surface, you know, or, or actually dig out a worm that was in the, in the apple or the, or the pear. I mean, we understood that other creatures were also trying to eat what we ate, and we didn't mind digging a caterpillar out of, a, out of an apple before we ate it or bottled it or whatever. Now we demand absolute perfection. And, of course, in demanding that absolute perfection, we get that by spraying massive amounts of chemicals onto those things. And I think for, for children to have the experience of actually seeing how their food grows in the soil and to realize that you know, all these chemicals are sprayed on it and, and say, wait, I, wait a minute, now I don't want that. I think that would be a, a wonderful experience. And to, to gather eggs from a chicken and to feed the pigs. And uh, I remember Gretchen Daly, who's an ecologist at Stanford, she uh, played basketball once a week with uh, some guys, some pals around the university. And, and an engineer came out onto the basketball court one day and said, Hey, guess what? I just learned milk comes from cows. <laughs> he thought it was made in a factory, chemically mm-hmm. added together to make milk. I mean, can you imagine somebody's 25 years old? and doesn't realize that milk is a biological product. It's incomprehensible. It is incomprehensible. But that's the kind of people that we're growing up, people that sit in front of computers and learn everything out of of the uh, computer. You know, we need to to see it, to, to feel it and taste it. Well, and there's nothing like growing up uh, and having a first experience as, a, as an urban kid going into a, a dairy barn and, yep. ki- and catching, you get up in the fir- first thing in the morning, five o'clock in the morning, you're out there, it's cold, there's yep. all, all sorts of different feelings, and then you walk into the barn and suddenly that reality hits you, the yep. smells, the everything, uh, that changes, that's a lot, that all by itself, every kid should be forced to go into a dairy barn. Absolutely, <laughs> because you're right up against, oh my God, I mean, this is stuff we're going to drink, and here's all this poop and yeah, tea and exactly. everything else, I mean, it's very <laughs> biological, this yeah. is... You know, one thing I've felt is that we're, we're trying so hard now to get rid of the notion that we are animals. Yes. I gave a talk in Austin, Texas a few years ago, and there were a lot of children in, my, in the audience, and I said to them at the end of my speech, I said, now kids, if there's one thing you remember from my talk, please remember that we are animals. And man, I couldn't believe how mad their parents got at me. Don't call my daughter an animal, we're mm. human beings. You know, we really think that we're somehow different. I mean, and you can see it in the way we use language. If you call someone a chicken or a pig or a, or a snake or a worm or an ape, these are all insults because we think we're superior to those animals. But by forgetting that we are biological creatures, we forget that every bit of the food that eat, we eat was once alive. There's nothing we eat for our food that wasn't once living. And most of it comes right out of the soil. And we forget that, you know, as biological beings, if we don't have clean air, we're in deep trouble, or clean water, or clean soil that gives us our food, or clean energy from the sun. You know, we've really got to get back to some basics, because human beings have become such a powerful creature now that our technology and our consumptive demand 
is really changing the planet in a very dangerous way. And so we emerge in life, onto our stage, into our moment. We continue with Dr. David Suzuki when your voice of the earth broadcasts the balance here on the Wild Side News. Melting polar ice was a dirty look. Shrinking glaciers, a nudge. Then dying coral reefs pushed us hard. Rising ocean temperatures and extreme weather, an uppercut. Then record-breaking heat waves hit us right where it hurts. Has it occurred to anyone that maybe the Earth is trying to get our attention? We can still reduce greenhouse gas pollution. To find out how, go to fightglobalwarming.com. Brought to you by Environmental Defense, the Robertson Foundation, and the Ad Council.